I'm very happy for the opportunity to speak to you on this uh, very important topic of revival. I wish we could do it in person, but of course, this is uh, second best, I guess. I'm very thankful for that. I want to speak to you for a few moments from a very well-known passage that I think is very, very important uh, in the particular day in which we live. This is a familiar passage, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. You would no doubt agree with me that the Western world in particular is in moral and spiritual freefall. We see it across the board. We see it in the United States right now with these uh, wicked uh, Democratic leaders with their abortion, trying to take our Second Amendment rights away from us, the transgenderism, uh, open borders. Uh, it goes on and on and on. It's getting worse every day. Our prices are increasing dramatically. So we're, we're in a mess, no doubt about it. So what is the prescription for revival? Well, let me remind you of the context of Second, Second Chronicles 7. Uh, Solomon has just, by God's grace, built the temple. He's offered a dedication of the temple. And in chapter 7, the Shekinah glory, the glory of the Lord fell upon the people, and they worshiped God. They offered sacrifices. It was the Feast of Dedication. And then there's this amazing passage. Now, we, we know the passage very well, but I think it's important that we get the context. In verse 12, he says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now, notice this. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if, I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people whom I shall call by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. So he's promising that, that if calamity comes, there is a remedy. And that remedy is to humble ourselves, is to pray, is to seek the face of God, is to turn away from wickedness. And if we do that, he promises that he will hear from heaven, that he will forgive our sin, that he will heal our land. Conversely, if we do not humble ourselves, if we do not pray, if we do not seek the face of God, if we do not turn from our wicked ways, then we have no reason to believe that he will answer and that he will bring revival. So there's a prescription here. Now, obviously, at that particular time, the covenant people of God was Israel. Well, we're not Israel today, but nonetheless, those principles apply to us. Why wouldn't they? It's the word of God. So what is the remedy? Well, we're to humble ourselves. So there's four things here, humiliation, prayer, seeking God, turning from our wicked ways. Now, when we speak of humiliation, I think we need to look at it passively and actively. 
passive humiliation would be when God brings hardship upon us. If the locusts come, if we're invaded by a foreign nation, if there's earthquakes, if there's tornadoes, if there's war, if there's pestilence, God very often brings calamity upon his own people. That's a, he brings it upon us. We didn't bring it upon ourselves. Of course, our wickedness did, but he brings it upon us. That's a form of passive humiliation. God humbles us through the events that he brings about, that he ordains to come down upon us in our, in our own particular nations. That's a passive humiliation. But there's also an active humiliation when we humble ourselves, when we bow down before him, when we acknowledge our sin, when we say, Lord, search me and try me and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. When we begin to look at our own personal sins, and by the way, he's speaking to the covenant people of God. He's not speaking to the nation as a whole. He's speaking to those who know him, who love him, who trust him. So the judgment, as Peter says, begins with the household of God. So we must begin with God's people. We must humble ourselves. That passive humiliation coming from him, but the act of humiliation when we choose to humble ourselves before God and acknowledge our sin. Then we're to pray. Well, what kind of prayer are we supposed to do? Well, I've said many times before that we must learn to pray with what I call an intolerable burden. Daniel had it in Daniel 9 when he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote about 100 years before, seeing that the Medo-Persians were coming to power, that now the 70 years of exile was about up, and he prayed from the morning to the evening sacrifice, probably about 12 hours. So Daniel had had enough of the status quo. We see the same with Ezra and Nehemiah in their particular times. They could not stand the way things were. It moved them to an earnest prayer. And I, I refer to intolerable burden as an intense agony, grief, and alarm at the status quo in our personal lives, in the church, and in the world. And until we gain that intolerable burden, we will really not pray as we ought, which begs the question, how do we gain that intolerable burden? Well, in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, we have a picture of what that looks like with a Syrophoenician woman. Again, I'm limited in my time, so I can't develop it as I would normally do so. But the, but the Syrophoenician woman sees Jesus coming. Jesus comes into her area, which was a pagan area. She was a pagan herself. And she has a, a daughter who's demon-possessed. You know the story well. And she says, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. The first thing we've got to do to gain an intolerable burden is to see the darkness. It's not merely that we've got a few problems here or there. It's not merely that we've got sociological, geopolitical, or economic problems. No, our problems are deep-rooted. Our problems are of the devil. They're diabolical. There's darkness everywhere, and until we see that, we will not pray with an intolerable burden. But not only that, but when Jesus heard the woman speak to him, he did nothing. He was quiet. That unnerved her, no doubt. What made matters worse, however, was his disciples said, Lord, send her away. She's yelling at us. 
Well, that's what mamas do when their child's in trouble. And what she says now is she's realizing, well, you know, if Jesus doesn't answer me, if Jesus doesn't show up, if Jesus listens to his disciples and sends me away, then I have no hope at all. So the first thing we've got to have to gain in the intolerable burden is to see the darkness. The second thing is to see that if Jesus does not show up, utter and complete despair, no hope at all. But then finally, Jesus says, I was sent to the last lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, Matthew tells us that she continued to implore. She fell down before him and said, Jesus, have mercy on me. The woman then began to have a sense of the necessity of total surrender. Total surrender means that you surrender daily to the will and to the word of God. What is it that God says we're to do in his infallible, inspired, inerrant word? Whatever that is, we're to obey. We must obey. That's to surrender. Our will to his will. Our desires to his will for us and for the nations. Then, to go further, uh, Jesus says, uh, um, it's not good to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she says in an amazing way, yes, Lord, but even the dogs should be able to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, which means she had a sense of unfailing faith. So we must have, in order to gain the intolerable burden, we must have an awareness, a deep awareness of the darkness, of despair if Jesus doesn't show up, of total surrender. God, do what you will with me, with this nation. And then unfailing faith. We just believe. We never give up. We always believe that God can do a great work. So that's uh, humiliation and that's prayer. Then we're told we have to seek after God. And when he says seek after God, that's not merely seeking him because we're in some trial or we're in some sort of discomfort, uh, some kind of uh, jailhouse religion, so to speak, or just to gain some kind of peace. But it means literally to seek the face, to seek the presence of God. The same thing is spoken of in Jeremiah 29, where he says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. Again, that sense of utter desperation. You seek him not simply because he can give you something that you think you need, not simply because he might give you a little relief, but you seek the face of God and you're satisfied with him alone no matter what happens. With Job, you're able to say, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That's where we've got to be, to seek the face of God. And then we have to turn from our wicked ways. And so think of it like this, a man in adultery. There's a motive for turning away from our wicked ways. There's an object from which we're to turn and to which we're to turn. There's a manner in which we're to do so, and there are certain effects of turning. First of all, to turn from our wicked ways, the motive is not merely because we're in an inconvenient situation because of our sin and our suffering. No, we must do this with a fear of hell. The man, caught in, the man in adultery must come to realize that he must turn from his wicked ways, not merely to save his marriage, not merely to save his reputation 
or his children. Of course, all those things are important. But he must turn from his wicked ways because he realizes that adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and liars and thieves and drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's got to have a healthy, real fear of hell. If he continues to live that way, no matter what kind of profession of faith he's made, he's on the road to hell. So that's the motive. You fear God and you fear hell. But then there's the object. You turn to God. Again, not a jailhouse religion, not just to get some ease, but you literally turn from sin to God. You turn from sin. You turn from Satan. You turn from death. You turn from the flesh indwelling sin, and you turn to God. That's the object to which we turn. Then there's a manner of turning. You must turn from the heart. Again, Jeremiah says, the Lord speaks through him and says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. God can see through our feigned obedience. He wants heartfelt obedience. And how do we know that we've engaged in a heartfelt obedience to God. Well, Paul speaks and says that their eyes might be open to turn from darkness to light, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. Someone has turned with their heart to God when God opens their eyes and they really do see the danger in which they're living. Again, the man in adultery. People find out about it. They challenge him about it. And he kind of blows it off. Well, you know, my wife's a problem and I need, I need, she's not meeting my needs or whatever. But when God opens his eyes to see the danger, then he will turn and he will turn from the heart. And then finally, there are the effects of turning from our wicked ways. What happens is when someone has truly turned from their wicked ways, then they have a new master of the house. Until that particular moment, the master of the house was the evil one himself. He was controlling the man. And the man was doing the bidding of the evil one. And the evil one's workers, which might be friends or family members or work associates or whatever. But the master of the house at that time was the devil himself. But when a man turns away from his wicked ways from the heart, then it manifests itself in a new master of the house. And that new master is King Jesus himself. And from that point on, now again, we battle sin, no doubt. But generally speaking, from that point on, the man realizes that when the intruder comes in through subterfuge or when the intruder knocks down the door and comes in and tries to take over, you say, no, you stand against him because you have a new master and that new master is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gives you the power to live like Jesus is commanding you to live. So you you learn to hate the intruder. 
You learn to hate your past sins. You learn to hate the sin of adultery, the sin of thievery, or whatever it might be, because you know it can destroy you. You don't want that intruder in. You drive him out. The new master, the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit and the Word of God, drives him out. So, my dear friends, we're never going to see revival in, in the Western world again unless we humble ourselves before God, unless there is a passive humiliation as we realize what God's doing in bringing all these difficulties upon us. And then there's an active humiliation when we choose to humble ourselves before him and seek him. And then also there is this idea of the necessity of prayer, praying earnestly with an intolerable burden, praying with the idea that we see the darkness. We see the despair if Jesus doesn't show up, which drives us to total surrender, which means that we must pray with unfailing faith and trust and believe that God can do a great work. It means that we seek God, not merely for the good things that he can give us, not merely for the bread, as it were, but for the bread giver. It means that we seek his face and not merely peace or tranquility in this life. It means that we also uh, seek God, not merely because of, of these trials, but because of what he can do, uh, what he's calling us to do. But again, finally, we turn from our wicked ways, the motive, the object, the matter, the effects, not merely for convenience sake, but we turn to God, not for jailhouse religion. The manner is from the heart and the effects of it is a new master. If we will do that, God will bring revival. If we do not do that, he will not bring revival. So the challenge to you and to me is for us to humble ourselves before God, to seek his face, to pray, to turn from our wicked ways. And if we do, he will hear from heaven. And hearing doesn't mean that he just hears what we say. Hearing means that he will act. How do we know? What kind of acting will he do? He will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sins and he will heal our land, which means he will bring prosperity and peace to his people. And then by that, others will also be engaged in that peace. That's what we're after, my dear friends. May we humble ourselves. May we pray. May we seek his face. May we turn from our evil ways. The challenge to you and to me is, will you do so? It's up to you. It's up to me. Will you do so? Amen.